0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, there's a lot happening in the commodity market. We're going to talk about those issues in just a moment with Dwayne Bussey at Bolt Markets. And then in segment two, we're going to talk with Kate McGlover, the executive director of the Public Lands Council, about what the Bureau of Land Management is proposing. And then in in segment number three, we're going to talk land values. Paul Shadeg of Farmers National is going to join us with a roundup of what's developed in farmland sales here across the country. And we're going to close today with a look at the weather. We're still seeing weather determine what happens out there in the fields. And Greg Solier will join us at the end of the program with a look at what he's expecting in the week ahead let's dive into these markets to kick off the day it appears soybeans have a little bit of green on the screen dwayne Bussy, bolt marketing what's going on here in the bean trade
3: well i think the bean market and the corn probably as well i think we're trying to just square up positions before tomorrow's big usd report you know soybeans obviously we know we're going to lose a lot of acres when usd plugs those numbers into the spreadsheet And that makes a tighter situation. And I think the big question for tomorrow is where will they put that yield at? And I got to tell you already, Mike, I'm one leaning that I I don't think USDA is going to drop the yield as much as the bulls would like. But um, you never know.
0: Dwayne, what is the USDA print right now for soybean yield across the country?
3: Uh, Right now, just a little bit under trend. Let me scroll down there. They've got the corn yield estimated at 176.6 for tomorrow and the soybean yield at 51.4, which versus the uh, estimate of what, 52 last month. So yeah, a little bit lower, you know, crop conditions, the early drought uh, is is the issue, we believe, with these crops going forward. So yeah, we'll see. You know, I will point out, USA usually likes to slow play changes in yield. Now, you know, obviously this is the July report. They can and, and have made adjustments before, and, and probably will lower them at least a little bit. But there was little discussion on Twitter yesterday with a few other brokers that talked about what if they don't change the corn yield and leave it at the 181 and a half, and that would probably get the uh, social media flying high right away. I think.
0: Yeah, that would uh, 94 and change million acres times 181 bushels. That is a big crop, isn't it, Dwayne?
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to do the map actually behind that one, so don't make me. <laughs> All right, but that's that's
0: a possibility right I mean we expect USDA to lower the yield but they've surprised in the past by slow playing these moves so is it worth getting some protection on in the event that they leave that 181 in there for corn
3: you know I I think it is I I know every producer is looking at 503 today on the board and saying well gosh it was if it was 603 then I'd be doing more but but five dollars is still worth protecting and you don't have to sell the board straight out I mean you can look at options right now August short dated new crop options are are pretty inexpensive, you know, 10, 11 cents for close to right at the money, you know, that'll last you till next week. And you can always let a put option, if it's in the money, especially deep in the money, you can let it change to a futures position. So like you mentioned, if, if we get that bearish report, then you'll probably be in the money. And with a put option, you always still have the upside open.
0: Always got the upside open. Dwayne, looking at the, the rest of the WASDE report tomorrow, of course, it's the world agricultural supply and demand. and this time of year, the world is focused on the U.S., but we do have that Brazilian corn crop, the monster down there in, in Brazil. Are you expecting any changes to global corn or bean supply on tomorrow's report?
3: Yeah, a, a little bit, um, and towards the bearish side there, too. Like you said, it, Brazil's crop seems to be getting bigger. They're even their soybean crop seems to still be getting bigger, but this corn crop that they're harvesting now, you know, they're behind normal harvest pace. And most producers out there know if you're behind pace, it's usually because you're handling more bushels. And I think that's exactly the problem in Brazil is they've got a big monster corn crop coming as well, and that's our problem moving into this fall is we're not going to be the only game in town when it comes to the export market for corn or soybeans. Uh, Brazil is going to be out there with the. Uh, a crop that's more than likely cheaper than us unless we adjust our prices lower.
0: And Dwayne, you know, we, we talked to so many brokers who who say the enthusiasm for planting more acres in Brazil is is still there. They've got incentives to grow as you look at this next year. Given where prices are at right now, corn or soybeans, are you hedging any of the 24 or 25 crops right now?
3: Uh, in, a, in an odd way, we are. We, we were hedging the, the corn crop a little bit more aggressively, the 24 crop, but we were doing it by just selling more of the 23 crop, which I know isn't totally a hedge. But our assumption is that we go down and make harvest lows at some point in time, and I probably would exit the 24 hedges as well. You know, that's all straight on the board. Just, you know, it, it's simpler that way. Of course, you know, if you're a broker for so many, so many years, you should probably enjoy doing it that way. So, yeah, we hedged it pretty hard in the 23 crop is what we've been doing.
0: All right, hedge in the 23 crop there. Dwayne, and you mentioned soybeans, that's where you're you're putting some hedge on as well.
3: We, we are, not as aggressive as the corn. Now obviously when you lose those acres, that soybean number could, well, it's going to get tighter, there's no doubt about that when you lose those acres. Um and even if the yield is down just a little bit, that could get fairly bullish, but I know USDA every time I think they should print an ending stock number below 200 million bushels, it seems like that's their line in the sand. They don't like to cross. So I, I don't think they're going to print a crazy bullish soybean number either. Um, probably slight adjustments in new crop export demand, which I mean, it's probably too early to do that, but our pace right now is, slow so i would understand if they do decrease that so look for usda to maybe disappoint us a little bit too and keep the soybean crop size just a little bit higher for now anyway
0: watch for usda to disappoint us too i think that's (laughs) solid advice heading into any report Dwayne. i want to turn our focus over the cattle markets we're we're continuing to see live cattle not selling off aggressively but we're not putting too much more on Dwayne, it appears to be that the market is treading water what are we waiting for here in the cattle trade
3: I, I think you're right there mike you know a, a nice recovery from last week's lows, really sharply higher market on friday continued on monday back months all made new contract highs but the front month august didn't and we're down just a little bit today it's so like you said this back and forth type trade is going on uh choice box beef are trending lower cash is trending lower that's the seasonal tendency this time of year it shouldn't be a big surprise so i'm a little surprised to see the strength in the futures market i i think it might be chart-driven funds that are just trading this thing back and forth when, you know, the front month August contract isn't in delivery and really the futures market can kind of do whatever it wants to until we get into delivery. So probably more chart driven than anything, but I still have a bearish tilt towards the cattle in the near term where, it's just more of me following a seasonal tendency than anything. I think we keep grinding lower.
0: Right, Dwayne. And that is historically summertime. We see that that um, uh, Memorial Day peak, Labor Day peak, then we get 4th of July and then typically demand trails off. Is that what you're expecting to see?
3: You're exactly right, Mike. I'm not really going bold with any crazy predictions here. I'm just kind of following the te- seasonal tendency. Now, we are or USDA is projecting a 5% decrease in beef production this fall, uh, this fourth quarter. So, I mean, the futures market is pricing that in there with these higher futures. So I I don't know if maybe if we can just maintain here, that's probably good enough, but we'll see come fall when the demand picks up again for cash cattle. And, uh, maybe we can make new all time highs then again. And we're right there now. I mean, this is great prices, but, uh, I just have a hard time getting bullish at the highs right now. You're
0: right. That certainly makes sense. Dwayne, we've also got broad market news. We've got that CPI inflation information coming tomorrow from Uncle Sam. Are you expecting to
3: see any shocks there? I assume inflation's
0: likely still with
3: us, right? Hey, it sure seems that way. It does every time I open my credit card bill. <laughs> anyway, It seems like it's still here. Talking more about uh, higher interest rates, probably the next Fed meeting here coming up. All right, lots to watch in the year ahead as we get deeper into this. We've been talking to Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing.
0: And, Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Folks, stick
0: around. We're going to keep talking about what's moving in the livestock sector with Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of the Public Lands Council, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, we sit down with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for a segment we call the monthly grind. We like to look into the uses for that corn crop once it leaves your farm. Joining us this week for the monthly grind, we're going to be talking with Troy Schneider of Colorado and Denny Vienicotter, corn grower from Ohio. Troy, I understand you've got a road trip coming up in the next couple of weeks. Where are you headed? Not only myself, but
4: about 100 other team members from the seven action teams at National Corn Growers Association will be going to Washington, D.C., July 17th through the 20th for Corn Congress. 17th and 18th, we have action team meetings. And the 19th, we'll be going to the Hill to visit legislators. And then on the
5: 20th, we will have Corn Congress, where we conduct business twice a year.
0: Denny, no doubt you'll be talking about the Consider Corn Challenge. Can you fill us in? So we have 20 entries in it, biomaterial products,
4: different technologies that will use corn in a different way than animal feed.
0: Thank you, Denny and Troy. Folks, learn more at ncga.com and tune in July 18th for the next Monthly Grind.
5: This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen, and in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today.
0: Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the
2: world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and as we were just speaking about with Dwayne Bussey, the markets are providing some great times for cattle producers right now across the country. It's been a long time coming for cow-calf operators and feedlot producers, but it's here. We're seeing record and near-record pricing. However, there is still policy that can impact our industry, and there is a lot of that floating around in Washington, D.C. Caitlin Glover, the executive (laughs) director of the Public Lands Council, keeps tabs on what's floating around out there and how it can impact producers on the ground. She's got some updates for us today. Caitlin, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
7: Well, it's always great to join you, Mike. And and uh, it, it is nice to hear uh, and, and have some conversations when market conditions are good, uh, but we always want to keep our eye on the ball because it's that that regulatory atmosphere that sometimes can can make or break the, the situation for cattle and, and even sheep producers across the country.
0: That's a great point. It's not just beef on the range. And Caitlin, I want to talk to you first about that rangeland, specifically land out west. Cattle ranchers across the western part of the country lease a lot of public ground from the Bureau of Land Management. And I understand BLM is looking to perhaps change the way some of those leases work in the future. Can you give us the overview as to the situation?
7: Absolutely. So the the skinny on this, Mike, is that the Bureau of Land Management um, has the management, primary management responsibility for about 255 million acres uh, across the West. And, And about 155 of those Uh, 155 million of those acres are at some time during the year um, utilized for, for livestock grazing for cattle or sheep. Um, Earlier this spring, we saw the Bureau of Land Management propose a a rule change uh, that would change the way they manage these landscapes. They manage them for what's called multiple use and sustained yield. And that means that they're trying to balance a lot of the different uses. Grazing, of course, but things like energy development and recreation and wildlife habitat and a lot of different other multiple uses things that Congress told them really specifically to do when they passed the Federal Land Management and Policy Act in 1976. Well, this proposed rule uh, would add another use, uh, would would sort of circumvent what Congress had told them to do in the 70s, add another use, and would allow the agency then to lease some of these 250-some million acres for conservation. Now, as you and I both know, ranchers, grazing permittees, they're all about conservation. But the problem in the the devil in the details of these rules would actually mean that these leases, these conservation leases, could preclude other uses, would have the ability to remove grazing, remove recreation, remove hunting and fishing in organized capacities. Um, and that's a that's a pretty big change, especially when you consider that we talk about these lands as public lands, having value for the American public, but also creating a commercial value. The, the beef, the lamb, the wool, um, creating those, those commercial values in, in addition to those environmental values. And I I could
0: argue, Caitlin, as well, that keeps families on the land, that keeps rural America vital when we've got ranchers out there utilizing these 155 million acres.
7: You're exactly right, Mike. I mean, these ranchers are the front line, not only of, of fire prevention, but also fire mitigation, but they're really at the core, the fabric of what makes these rural communities tick, right? You know, the rancher is also going to go to the feed mill. They're going to go to the local grocery store, um, you know, whether it's a fuel distributor or, or anything in that that rural community that drives that economic development. It really those ag operations. And when you remove or have the potential to remove 155 million acres, that is a pretty sizable hit for the 14 Western states where federal lands grazing is an integral part of those beef and sheep and and wool operations.
0: So Caitlin, from BLM's perspective, as they look at putting out these conservation leases. What do they anticipate happening on that tract of ground? Is a conservation lease simply, we're going to give it to somebody, they put up no trespassing signs, and, and we don't touch this land for a period of time?
7: I mean essentially, yes, Mike, that, 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 that is that is the danger here, right These conservation leases uh, are, are there were no standards in the proposed rule. Um, there were very few time frames or, or boundaries about where and when and how these conservation leases um, would would be issued and, and how they would be maintained and sort of checked up on, right. Um, and so you know what what the danger here is that you you would have exactly that. Somebody comes in with a conservation lease, says that all other uses are incompatible with whatever work they're leasing the ground to do, uh, precluding those, the access to those acres, uh, and, and then really having very little oversight for 10 years or, or more, um, even though the BLM has fairly strict standards for other users like grazing. Uh, that is not an acceptable outcome for the grazing community, which is why you saw us uh, submit such such substantive comments when the comment period closed last Wednesday. And that led those grazing industry comments uh, and, and led those contributions to the, to the BLM.
0: All right. And that's where we want to go next, Caitlin, because this was a proposed rule. It had an open comment period. That comment period, as you mentioned, recently closed. How many comments did the Bureau of Land Management receive on this issue?
7: Well, Mike, I think you and I would need to put all of our fingers and toes uh, from from all of our small towns across the West to count those up. I think they had something like 175,000 comments that were submitted. Um, not all of them substantive, right? You know, some of them, uh, a vast majority of them, I would imagine, are form letters, uh, things that organizations send out where you can add your name and 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 submit it as an independent comment. Um, but those are counted as as form letters as a single submission. But unfortunately, it's it's uh, the agency's job to sort through all of those uh, and and figure out what's what's novel what's substantive and what's uh, a mass communication
0: all right so that's the stage we're at right now what's the timeline look like because we still need caitlin if i'm correct we still need to have a final rule promulgated when they incorporate all of the different suggestions from these comments and then is there a comment period on that final rule as well or will that be the end all be all
7: so that's a great question, Mike. And, and this rule, and, and that's sort of the, the crux of, of some of our concerns with this proposed rule. Um, the BLM skipped a lot of steps when they went directly to a proposed rule, and, and this rule wasn't subject to NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. So the BLM didn't undergo any environmental analysis on this rule, which really allowed them to speed up the process. So even though they have to sort through these 175,000 comments, um, they're still pretty convinced, it sounds like, that they're are going to be able to move quickly toward a, a final rule. Um, it takes time to develop a final rule, uh, even when you're, you're not doing NEPA, uh, but I, I still think that we should be prepared for the agency to try to move on on a final rule before the end of the year. When we see that final rule, it won't have a comment period, um, but it will then trigger some other, other processes, um, some protest periods and things like that, um, it, but, but we're, we're going to be watching that closely. The one thing I will say, though, is that if the agency heeds our comments and does go back to do NEPA, to do an environmental and economic analysis on the impacts of the rule, how this would harm rural communities, um, this process could take much longer.
0: Okay. All right. So that could take longer if it gets to that NEPA stage. Now, Caitlin, of course, we're waiting on that final rule, waiting on the BLM to uh, to digest all of these comments. But of course, it's not just national level organizations that are working on this issue. You've partnered with a number of governors in Western states. And what are their avenues or paths forward to keep their constituents grazing?
7: So, so I think that's a great question, and and as part of this process, PLC really focused on those partners because this rule would have impacts for grazing, no doubt, um, but the BLM has even said that grazing would, would likely be compatible in a lot of these cases uh, even though it's not contained in the final rule, right? So, so they're just words at this stage. Um, but that's why it was so important for us to partner not only with other industries, but for folks like governors and county commissioners and conservation districts. Um, governors and, and those local officials have the ability not only to control uh, and, and and manage state lands, adjacent state lands, But a lot of these governors have MOUs, they have um, other kinds of agreements with the BLM and have a lot of influence, whether it's through a a governor's review of of other regulatory items, like the sage grouse land use plans, um, or even other energy plans. Um, We expect those Western governors who have concerns to to be on top of the BLM at every stage through this process. uh, Because ultimately, if, if these industries suffer, if these landscapes suffer, It's not really the BLM that feels the consequences. It's these states, these communities uh, that's really close to home for for all of these Western governors.
0: Caitlin, if we've got listeners now in Western states in particular who want to get up to speed on this issue, Public Lands Council's done a lot of work. Can you tell them where to go to get more information and, and keep up with it as it changes?
7: So if you're in Western states uh, and you're you're part of PLC, if you've if you used PLC uh, resources in the past, visit publiclandscouncil.org to, to view a lot of our materials. But even if you're a listener or a producer in uh, another state, right? Um, grazing lands matter, this forage matters to you and it will impact your community. So I invite all of you to, to visit that same website, that publiclandscouncil.org. Uh, and, and work with your state affiliates, work with your partners to learn more.
0: Absolutely. This will have impacts on your operations. That's Caitlin Glover of the Public Lands Council. Folks, stick around. We'll talk farmland prices when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association along with AOA are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C. and we'll be reflecting on the year and what's ahead along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss.
5: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we look at the market trade on this Tuesday, soybeans, again, the upside leader here with beans and bean meal trading moderately higher. A little bit of pressure in soybean oil after reaching some new contract highs yesterday. So that's something to keep our eyes on. Corn's up a little bit despite... Corn condition ratings going up 4% in the good excellent category nationwide as of Sunday. And the wheat market is mixed to mostly higher here as well. As we see with the case of corn and beans especially, you'll be watching the weather as we move forward. This year's Midwest weather shaped up pretty much as expected outside of being about three weeks behind what many folks had forecasted. Uh, But nonetheless, a cooler and wetter pattern settling in. But did we do too much damage to the crop already in June? That is something that traders are going to have to weigh. Crude oil prices modestly higher as well here today. And wheat getting some support. Corn as well from the expectation that the Ukraine Grain Initiative will soon come to an official end. Just two ships currently remain within the safe corridor established by the initiative. Russia reportedly sent 28 drones to attack one of the grain terminals at Odessa overnight, whereas Ukraine reportedly shot down 22 of them. So a lot of tension in the Black Sea is playing into this market as well. And a bit of positioning ahead of the Wednesday WASDE report from USDA. That is also in this trade. Now over in livestock, we see a mixed day so far there hogs moderately higher with cattle futures steady to slightly lower just not a whole lot of movement going on in cattle or hogs as we work through Tuesday's session outside markets are quiet as well I mentioned crude oil up about a dollar right at the 74 dollar mark the Dow Jones up 70 points this is AOA I'm Jesse Allen
8: vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens
9: most people
0: This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world.
2: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and now we're going to turn our focus to the value of the land underneath our feet. Twice a year, the folks at Farmers National Company publish what they call their regional sales report, and they produced it last time in January. We've had six more months of market movement, and they've got a new one out today. Joining us now to fill out in the details is Paul Shadegg, Vice President at Farmers National Company. And Paul, thanks for joining us today.
4: Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. And yeah, you're, uh, you're getting this hot off the press.
0: Well, that is what we love to do here on AOA is bring the news as it happens. Paul hit us with the headlines. It seemed like farmland values are staying strong over the past six months. Does your data back that up? Well, it it
4: does to a certain extent, you know, the, the, when we look at that 10,000 foot view, though, we have to look back to the between the third and the fourth quarter of 2022, when we started to see a little uh, period of de-escalation. The markets were still very strong and we saw a lot of record land sales, but in general, we really saw a uh, a softening of, of land values. And instead of seeing those double digit increases that we saw in 2021 and 22, we started to see still an increase, but it was down to a single digit. And that trend has kind of continued into. To the first half of '23.
0: All right. So if I understand you correct, we're still seeing value growing, but there's a, maybe a little bit less enthusiasm for those top top dollar market sales. Is that is that what's happening?
4: Yeah, that's that's uh, very well stated. And the what we do see is that the high quality land, there's still plenty of demand for uh, the sale of that land. Where we're seeing uh, any of, any of those what we call Class B, Class C farms are starting to see that first uh, period of de-escalation because people are are thinking, well, if I've got to fix a couple issues, you know it's not worth as much to me.
0: Well, that makes sense. If you're paying top dollar, you want to top the market and have the best quality. That makes sense, Paul. I'm curious from a regional perspective, we've seen such disparity in weather across this country here over the past six months. Have you seen any regional differences emerge in in land sales? you know the
4: when i'm talking to across our area sales managers across uh, eight different regions across the country the the narrative is still uh, quite consistent that the the good land is selling really well but when you get out west into those drought-stricken areas the land sales uh, remain pretty strong in 2022 but now they're into that second year of drought and i think we're starting to see some uh, pressure uh, from from drought in general. And then uh, also when we look at Illinois, Indiana, areas like that, uh, I think you're starting to see a, a similar scenario there.
0: All right. All right. I'm curious about numbers, Paul. When we've got this high dollar ground, I've got to imagine there are more families perhaps thinking maybe this is the time to take an exit ramp. Are we seeing total volume of acres come to the market grow or are we seeing like on the residential side, tight availability of of properties on the market? Yeah, definitely
4: tight availability. And we've seen that over the last couple of years, but even more so now. And I think that The word of the day for a landowner is opportunity. Where does their opportunity lie? Is it uh, in selling the land at some really strong values, or are they better off to hold that as an investment and asset uh, for the future where they've seen over over a long period of time it has uh, done very well for them?
0: It has. It has. And I've got to imagine if they've made a purchase of farmland here and leveraged it, borrowed against it over the past five years, Paul, with interest rates rising, it's going to be more attractive to hang on to that ground with the low, low interest rate, right?
4: Yeah, that definitely plays into the equation and, uh, and something to, to consider because when, when interest rates started to move up at the first part of the year, uh, the, we didn't see that affect land values or activity much but now we're, we're definitely starting to see that that's uh, playing into the activity.
0: All right, Paul, I'm curious about sales types. Obviously when things were rocking and rolling, it made a lot of sense for folks to sell their farmland via an auction. It seemed as though the number of auction announcements just exploded in 2021 and 2022. Sitting here in 2023, are auctions still the, the way that most sellers are looking to introduce their property or are private treaty sales coming back into play?
4: Well, you know, it's 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 kind of ironic. I was just sitting at my desk uh, analyzing our last three months of uh, data in regards to the sale activity and what methods are being used, and that uh, that percentage has not changed. It it seems like it balances between anywhere from sixty-five to seventy percent. The last three months for us, sixty-eight percent of the transactions were by auction and you know the the reason for that is when we talk about true price discovery there is just no better way to find out what your land is worth today than using the auction methods
0: that's right you never know how bad somebody wants it until they've got to keep that hand in the air until the very end and it's can sometimes be surprising can it paul
4: it it certainly can you know i i think you and i talked earlier in the year about um you know we we really thought we'd start To see less and less of those uh, record land sales and and what I said back then was about the time I say we've probably seen the last one we get to see another one and and we're we're not seeing those as often right now, but we do still see some some very strong land sales.
0: All right, Paul. I've got a question here from one of our listeners on Facebook. And folks, just a reminder, if you follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, you can always tweet or message us. And if I see it, I'll try to get it on the show. I think this is a fascinating question from a listener out in Ohio. Contract sales, Paul, they have not really been an issue in farmland with low interest rates. There doesn't seem to have been much incentive for sellers to pursue contracts. With interest rates climbing, is that something that you could see coming back into the, uh, the vocabulary for farmland sales?
4: I, I think you do. I think that's when we've seen it historically is when interest rates were high. The uh, you know it it typically benefits a buyer more so than a seller. But uh, with with interest rates, uh, you know, there might be sellers that said, you know, if you're willing to uh, to to pay my price, I might be willing to help you out on uh, carrying this uh, this note back. So. Uh, yeah it's it's in in a changing market i think we start to see um some of those different types of finance options
0: okay but it's not something you're hearing about so far in this cycle we're not there yet it sounds like
4: no i don't i don't think so i've had we we have had some contract sales uh here recently but they've been for different reasons more so than uh than the interest rate pressure
0: Okay, all right. That makes some sense, Paul. You know we've seen a lot of strength here in cropland prices. Obviously, that goes back to the derecho of 2020, and things really started moving higher here in the past six months. We've seen some wind come into the sales of cattle producers, and I'm wondering about ranchland values. Are they starting to push up as well? We have not seen
4: grassland values change much, and there's I think there's a couple factors there. There's a lot of ranch land that's involved in uh, in this in these drought areas. And so those uh, they don't sell very well when they're not green and growing, but uh, but I think that we do it, it, when we look in the past we have seen the grassland values start to increase even when cropland values are dropping. And if the you know the the you know, livestock producers have cash in their pocket, they're going to be the next one to uh, to get aggressive in in buying land. So.
0: All right. We'll be watching. Again, it comes back, Paul, to what you mentioned earlier. We need rainfall. We need continued strong returns there for those cattle producers. Thinking about the investor interest in farmland, of course, when when interest rates were low, farmland offered a great ROI and and an appreciating asset for those investors. Again, with interest rates changing, with farmland values where they are, are we still seeing investor interest in farm ground, Paul?
4: Yeah, with the interest rates uh, increasing, we we kind of anticipated that we'd see some of that investor interest step back. But right now we we're not we still are. uh, We're still fielding a lot of inquiries on, you know, where's the best place for me to invest some land in land? And, you know, where what types of crops and, and things like that. So right at the moment, we're still seeing very strong interest from investors. And in fact, when we see changes in land value, especially a de- decrease, or as I said, a de-escalation of land values, that seems to pique some interest in uh, from the investor class.
0: That makes sense, Paul. And I'm wondering, again, from the investor class's perspective, if they're wading into the farmland market, they're probably looking to buy the Class A, the, the highest end properties on the market. Is that their niche?
4: I would say that in general they they definitely like to stay on that end of the spectrum. but with that being said, we do have a lot of investors that they they like to feel like they're getting a buy and and maybe buying a property that they feel like they can in, uh, add some value to. and so there there are definitely people in that side of it too.
0: All right, some investors still willing to put in some sweat equity kind of it sounds like Paul's right? exactly yes all right so this val this report was just out today the update here on farmland sales across the country paul have you at farmers national been able to get it out into the public quite yet or where should we go to keep up on uh where this information will be yes that
4: that uh, is being released today and uh, we will also have a link to it on our website at farmersnational.com if you want to pull it off of that
0: All right, folks, keep up to speed. Farmland prices are moving and it sounds like they might keep moving up or down, at least for the foreseeable future. We've been talking with Senior Vice President from Farmers National, Paul Shadegg. And Paul, thank you so much for joining us here today on AOA. Thank you, Mike. Anytime. And folks, stick with us. We're going to dig into that weather. Will those drought areas catch any moisture? Chance of storms coming later today. Meteorologist Greg Solier will join us when AOA returns. And we'll talk about just what to expect in the forecast for the week ahead. Leave it here. More AOA coming in just a moment. this is mike pearson you're listening to AOA
8: agriculture of america don't go away more AOA coming right up nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together this is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts hi i'm Gary Sinise Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes Purple Packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite.
0: This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Blake Mernon. He's working on seed treatment technologies with the CHS agronomy team. Blake, Seed treatment isn't new, but customizing seed treatment is something new. Can you tell us what you've been working on?
11: Seed treatments is one of the oldest agricultural practices that have gone on. But being able to customize seed treatments for the need of the geography and the pest pressure that exists in certain areas is, and that's one of the things that we can do at CHS with our STI customized seed treating blending services. Blake, when you're thinking about a custom seed treatment, what have farmers put into that blend? Well, it really depends on, again, the geography that they're in. But some of the things that we're seeing in certain areas are some growers are very concerned with water mold protection or the phytophthora, pythium diseases that are very detrimental to uh, healthy plant stands. So in areas such as that, what we can do is that we can add two modes of action, increase rates of the fungicides to really add very, very good protection against that type of pathogen. In other areas, we may need to bump nematicide protection. So what kind of benefits could farmers see with a customized seed treatment? Well, you get the exact protection that you need and you're not paying for other protection that isn't there. Other aspects that we can bring to custom blending is not only the protection aspect of a seed treatment, but also the plant growth promoting aspects that can be added to a seed treatment as well, such as plant growth regulators or micronutrient options that help feed the plant.
0: Well, Blake Martin from CHS, thank you so much for filling us in on seed treatments.
11: Absolutely. Thank you for the time.
0: And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com.
12: Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry one seeded fruit commonly called a kernel there are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel about 50 kernels per stock which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel that means that if a bushel is worth eight dollars then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents so you would need 2500 wheat stocks to equal one dollar now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour a bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta, or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
2: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, the AOA continues today, and we're going to turn our focus to the weather. Yesterday's crop conditions report from the U.S. dates on improvement to both corn and soybeans across the country, largely on the strength of recent rainfall that has moved through the Corn Belt. Now, our next guest has been saying for two months that more rainfall was coming, and now it's here, Greg Solier, meteorologist from This Week in Agribusiness. Greg, this is more or less what you thought Dry, hot summer to start, then the moisture develops.
1: Are we in the moisture period now? We are in the moisture pattern right now, the period, and it likely will stick around here for the next to 7 to 10 days. And then it's really no worse than a return to more normalized, typical July rains, and they tend to be a little more uneven in scope coverage and intensity and all that. But I tell you, the past couple of weeks have played out big time over the plains the sections of the Corn Belt, whether it's been soaking rains and, uh, by golly, get up there into the U- Areas of the Western Dakotas, another half an inch to an inch and a half the past 24 hours, rains up to an inch around the Black Hills and east from there towards the pier this, uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, once again, it's really these haves versus have Nazis, all or nothing thunderstorm complexes that are once again back into play over the next two or three days in just about the same corridor. The Dakotas, southeast uh, to the uh, Northern Delta region, if we will, getting a good part of the entire core belt in the plains, but especially. Focus in that ribbon from the western Dakotas down to about the Missouri boot heel. The next two or three days, where the rains will turn torrential. There's been enough rain in Kansas, which you believe I, I've i heard that the winter wheat harvest is delayed there. Uh, but there may be some significant, maybe too much of a good thing all at once type rains in some of those worst drought areas of the West and especially southwestern corn belt locales, centered on Missouri, the next couple of two or three days.
0: All right, Greg. Yeah, we've talked about that Kansas wheat harvest struggle. Marsha Boswell was on the show. They're still working to harvest that crop in the central and southern portions. Of the state, but you mentioned that ribbon stretching from western Dakotas down to the Missouri boot heel. That's going to cut right through Missouri, Greg, which has been really gripped by drought most
1: recently. Are they going to get enough moisture to come out of of, uh, of drought status? Yeah, I, I think we are still very much. Uh, I think it's. I've heard it to put as you know, bullish on rain and bearish on the market. I know it's tough to make discernible significant inroads on a drought weather pattern in the summertime season. We've done it already into some sections of the high plains areas, kind of at a price. The Just amazing pictures of some of these hail balls shearing some of the crops in uh, Nebraska, for example. There's the wrong reason, but for the better reason, in some of the uh, post frontal rains that came through or post deracial rains that came through parts of uh, the western, uh, central, and southern corn belt in the wake of that uh, deracial a couple of weeks ago, there too has been a, away from the storm damage related issues and improvement to soil moisture. And I think we will see the same apply to Missouri. In parts of western and southern iowa in the next uh, several days again maybe too much of a good thing you bring the specter of runoff and flash flooding and all that and the severe stuff into play but if you want organized rains this time of the year apart from and we've talked about this on the tv show you and i apart from bringing a, bringing a tropical re- remnant weather system uh, uh you know hurricane or tropical system inland and it rains itself out over parts of the plains or the southeast or the uh, core belt this is the way you make rain and unfortunately comes at a price sometimes with the hail and high wind aspects absolutely greg
0: i'm sure those growers certainly cow calf producers in missouri would love to see those pastures green up but that ribbon ending at the missouri boot heel ending down there in the arkansas delta you know that leaves the eastern corn belt dry and their soil moisture has been really balancing on zero for the better part of this season do you see any shots of moisture coming through indiana illinois ohio that direction
1: yeah, but you know, more garden variety, far more docile. Maybe not cu- quite the scope, the coverage, the intensity. Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, but they'll just kind of continue to limp along, struggle along. That'll apply to you know northern and eastern Wisconsin. Saw the shade of red turn up on the uh, drop monitor in southern Wisconsin and far northern Illinois uh, uh, last week. I think there'll be discernible improvement here this week. But yeah, it'd be those areas of Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, eastern and northern Indiana and Ohio. They're going to be maybe on the shorter side of the rain gauge here going forward Uh, maybe at some point mid to late next week something better uh, maybe not quite the ferociousness that we'll see in the plains of the western and southwestern corn belt so if you want to lump it all together and i hate to do that it's almost like scouting the fields from the road you know everyone should get them get into some degree of drought improvement here the next 10 to 12 days some more than others some coming at a price others will kind of almost rebalance the books around here so all hinges on your variety of corn beans your cattle operations as well. Uh, if you can drudge through the hail and the high wind of the severe, there should be, be able to probably next week get a better advance on the winter wheat harvest northward out of Kansas as well. So, uh, But apart from that, i tell you those western and southwestern states, that heat wave that was down in Texas a couple of weeks ago, it is epicentered in Arizona, Southern California, New Mexico. Some of that 112, 115, 118 degree heat is out there for now. So that's going to be a world of hurt for some of those ag operations there.
0: It is. And Greg, I was just looking at a weather map. Looks like Phoenix expected to see 110 today, El Paso at 106. Is there the risk that that hot weather dome could push up into the Corn Belt? Is Do you have higher than in normal uh,
1: temperatures on the, the forecast at all? Yeah, maybe a little above average, but nothing unusual for, you know, mid to late July back into the Western Corn Belt locales. And then maybe just a more seasonal uh, run on temperatures, either side of average or normal, if you will, applying to the Corn Belt as we get into the last week of July, beginning part of August. There's nothing really out of control from our standpoint from a uh, heat wave weather pattern. And we'll just kind of let those rains kind of ebb and flow. It'll all depend on your variety and, and how you've been able to manage the, the drought weather pattern there that heat ridge I think stays in the West maybe into the southern plains at times builds northward into the parts of the Pacific Northwest maybe as far north as big sky country we'll try to undercut that with maybe a little tropical moisture and 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 maybe try to get the monsoon season going here the next uh, five to seven days across the southwestern part of the state or the country I should say that should help the east temperatures a little bit but I think going forward here the next couple of weeks uh, through the rest of July just getting into more normalized temperatures and rainfall distribution so hopefully some folks got the recharge they needed. Others might still be on the shorter side of the gauge going forward here as we head through midsummer time.
0: Lots to watch, of course, with the peak of that growing season just ahead of us. We've been talking with meteorologist Greg Assolier Greg, as always, thanks for joining us on AOA break. today. Have a great day, sir. Folks, thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman, and we'll talk cattle with Daryl Peel. Don't want to miss it. We'll see you for more AOA tomorrow. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the first Wednesday of every month, we sit down with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for a segment we call the monthly grind. We like to look into the uses for that corn crop once it leaves your farm. Joining us this week for the monthly grind, we're going to be talking with Troy Schneider of Colorado and Denny Vienicotter, corn grower from Ohio. Troy, I understand you've got a road trip coming up in the next couple of weeks. Where are you headed? Not only myself, but about
4: 100 other team members from the seven action teams at National Corn Growers Association will be going to Washington, D.C., July 17th through the 20th for Corn Congress. 17th and 18th, we have action team meetings and the 19th we will be going to the hill to visit legislators and then on the 20th we will have corn congress where we conduct business twice a year
0: denny no doubt you'll be talking about the consider corn challenge can you fill us in so we have 20 entries in it biomaterial products
4: different technologies that will use corn in a different way than animal feed
0: thank you denny and troy folks learn more at ncga.com and tune in july 18th for the next monthly grind
9: what do mick jagger barbara walters and star jones all have in common